0: Hello and welcome to One Big Podcast. I am your host fellow worker Jason. I'm here with my co-host fellow worker Derek. How are you doing? And we're here with a special guest. Uh, He's from Railroad Workers United Uh, talking about the current threat of a strike from the railroad. It's Ron. Say hello Ron.
1: Hello. How are you doing Jason?
0: Oh just terrific. All right so railroads. They get us all our stuff. It's pretty big here in the US uh especially mythologically uh you know I watch a lot of westerns half of them have to do with the rail baron coming to town um what let's just start with like uh introductions then. like uh how how long have you been out with the railroad and like
1: what positions have you worked i hired out with the railroad in 1996 about 26 years ago i worked for a freight carrier called conrail it was a big class 1 railroad uh three years into my employment conrail got carved up between two bigger class one railroads csx and norfolk southern uh i had the misfortune of going to the norfolk southern otherwise known as the nazi southern uh, side of that carve-up they pretty much destroyed the railroad it was a major meltdown our main line looked like a parking lot Uh, And then the discipline started, uh, which they were notorious for, uh, constant harassment, uh, uh, firings, disciplinings uh, for minor, minor, minor rules and fractions, and for things like reading a newspaper while you're stopped at a red signal, um, taking a nap at four in the morning while you're stopped for six hours at a red signal, things of this nature. And it got finally untenable. Uh, Many of us left and went to different rail carriers in Chicago. In those days, you didn't really leave the railroad industry. It was too lucrative. The job was still a good job. One of the best blue collar jobs you could get without a college education and so forth. Um, But many of us left, but we went to other rail carriers because Chicago is a big rail terminal. Uh, I ended up coming to Amtrak in 2004. I've been with Amtrak ever since.
0: I was actually gonna ask you about that. is, what's the difference between Amtrak and like a freight carrier? Like, is it like different call time? I, from what I remember, uh, it was like, instead of being like four days on call, you go like out for two weeks?
1: Uh, no, that would be the onboard staff, they oh. would go out potentially for up to six, possibly seven days at a time. This is the dining car staff, oh, okay. coach attendance, sleeping car attendance, and so forth. But the train and engine crews are very, very similar in their mode of operation in both freight and passenger and commuter rail for that matter. Um, The difference with commuter operations and Amtrak is that our quality of life is better, uh, partly because Amtrak is theoretically a scheduled railroad. Um, Also, we are guaranteed at least one day off per week. Some jobs are guaranteed two days off per week uh this is a very rare in the freight industry where Mm -hmm. you work a pool or an extra board first in first out and you don't really know day to day week to week month to month when you're going to work how long you're going to be at work how long you're going to rot at your away from home terminal in a motel and when you're coming home and how long that tour of duty will last and so with amtrak you have a little bit more in some cases, a lot more predictability uh, and the ability to have more of a home life, a family life, um, and a union life, for that matter. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, full disclosure for all the listeners is like back in March, I applied to Norfolk Southern um, to be a conductor. Went down to Georgia, did their training, and over the course of it, I, uh, I you know I enjoyed it for the most part. Um, but every teacher instructor there talked about those their two ex-wives and like never seeing their kids <laughs> and uh i'm i'm 33 uh and I don't have a partner or kids I just have a cat who's really annoying um but i was just sitting there listening to him and thinking oh I still have stuff i want to do with my life and not just be at the railroad like I already gave my 20s to shitty jobs for no reason like i I can't do that you know what i mean So then I failed the test on purpose and went back home and collected my very good paycheck and thought, I probably just gave up a lot of money, but man, I got stuff I want to do, you know, it looked like an interesting job for sure. Um, But yeah, the main complaint everybody had was uh, not having a home life. Is that like the main reason the strike is coming about?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've heard it said about the rail industry, particularly the train and engine craft, which is trainmen and engineers, the, the folks who actually take the train, you know, over the road. Um, you know, it's the the best job you'll ever hate um, <laughs> or the worst job you'll ever love. I mean, take your pick. And the reason that the job is is very, very rewarding and meaningful, uh, besides the fact that you you can make decent money. Uh, without a college education at a blue-collar job. There's not many of them left. We do have a good pension system that's administered through an independent agency of the government. It's linked to Social Security. Uh, I believe everyone should have railroad retirement, but we do pay a lot into it. It's self-funded. So there's a lot of good aspects to uh, working for the railroad, Um, even in this age of surveillance, which is getting worse and worse, of course, with cameras and you know, spying and harassment and uh, everything's recorded and so forth. Um, when you're out there on the railroad, you're still sort of the feeling is you're the master of your own fate. You do not have an immediate supervisor looking over your shoulder telling you how to run the train, how to switch out the train, uh, do pickups and set outs and so forth. Um, you're outside in various weather conditions, uh, morning, noon and night. You see a lot of natural beauty. Um, there's a sense of freedom and the tangible measure of the job is that we just move 10,000 tons of freight from point A to point B. Uh, I mean, a lot of jobs can leave you with a sort of existential angst. Like, what is the <laughs> point? Why am I doing this? Um, Boy, don't least- I know it. <laughs> <laughs> and we've all been there. But at least with the railroad, you know, moving freight from A to B, there's this profound sense that I'm doing my part. I'm, I'm helping to build industrial society. Uh, I am providing food, clothing, shelter, medicine, all the necessary things, including a lot of junk too and materialistic crap, uh, You know, new BMWs, for example. Um, but you're moving these tangible things. So there's a lot of rewarding uh, aspects to the job. Um, but one of the most difficult aspects of being a freight railroader, especially in the train and engine craft, has traditionally been uh, long hours, uh, working an extra board, never knowing when the phone will ring, literally being tied to your phone or your pager uh, for 30 or 40 years, uh, working at all kind of odd hours, uh, being called short rested, where you're literally running on two, three, four, five hours sleep, Sometimes day after day after day, never knowing when you're coming home, missing your kids' little league game, your daughter's wedding, uh, your anniversary uh, you can name it. Uh, we don't get off on holidays, we work weekends. Uh, vacation is at a premium by seniority. And if you don't have the Cine, you're probably not going to get a vacation in the summer for your first five, 10 or 15 years of employment. So A lot of times people will say it's it's blood money you're 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 dedicating your life to the railroad and you're forfeiting all kinds of other aspects of life now until recently there was a fair number of people who were quite willing to make that sacrifice the conditions of employment have been pushed to the limit in recent years uh starting way before the pandemic with this thing called precision scheduled railroading. Mm -hmm. This is a big misnomer, uh, just like total quality improvement back in the (laughs) 80s and all these other sort of corporate gimmickry slogans that make you think, wow, we're all in this together. And (laughs) and things are getting so much better when in fact, there's nothing precise about it. And there's certainly nothing uh, scheduled about it at all. It is a Hmm. hoax. Uh, But it's making the rail industry a lot of money. So how did they do this? They did it by butchering the workforce, running extremely long trains, cutting back on maintenance of locomotives and cars, implementing technology wherever they can to automate jobs out of existence, and jacking up the rates on shippers and providing really poor service. So they didn't do it by moving more freight we're moving less freight than we did 16 years ago. Now think about this for a minute. This is while the economy has boomed and expanded greatly, Uh, the trucking industry is maxed out in terms of, you know, their ability to handle all the freight, but yet the rail industry is opting to move less freight simply by doing all the things that I just said. So who feels the pinch? Well, the shippers do. Uh, they're not happy with the service they're getting uh, and the workers as, do and the workers do i mean our lives are being made uh, in the freight industry pretty much intolerable and so throw in this thing called the pandemic the great american quit and all of the other psychological factors that go along with what's going on in the last 18 months or so and you see workers with 15 and 20 years seniority walking away from a good railroad, job, quote unquote good railroad job that used to be good, and now is not considered good anymore.
2: Yeah, it's becoming untenable. Exactly. So, Ron, you know, there's you know a couple of things that I think no one no one wants to listen to a podcast about the specifics of labor law, right? So, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of labor uh, of various labor laws here, but you know i think the national labor relations board has become very people are becoming more aware of it in the last few years and they and and they kind of they kind of think about it we see people actually using the national labor relations board again which is nice to see but the railroads aren't governed by the national labor relations board right they're governed by the the railway labor act um and you're governed by the national um national mediation board is that right correct um and and it's and, and so it's my understanding that that the railroads um every union's different but railroad unions as i kind of read about them and learn about them have always seemed like in particular very strange to me because like i i don't i don't operate in that world um and so it it seems to me like the railroad unions have formed like coalitions with one another and they have been like
1: negotiating jointly with carriers. Is that is that how that's been working? In, in recent bargaining sessions, the coalitions have gotten bigger. Um, there's been times in the past where rail unions just simply negotiated individually. I see. Um, we had it's- 26 unions on the railroad at one point. They've been pared down through, well, technological innovation. For example, we had a telegraphers union, Well, we don't have telegraphers anymore. So these unions largely lost members, amalgamated into uh, larger associations. And so now we've got it pared down to 12. But of course, we used to have two million railroad workers in this country, and now we're down to possibly a quarter million, and that would include uh, passenger, freight, commuter, short line, and so forth only about half of those workers are party to the National Freight Agreement, which is what's actually on the table. And so this sets the standard and the trend for workers um, all over the industry, this master freight agreement. And most of the big class one carriers, this time around, all of them except Canadian Pacific, which has minimal holdings in the United States, Uh, all of them but CP are bargaining as a group under the umbrella of what's called the National Carriers Conference Committee. The rail unions managed to get 10 of the 12 into one coalition called the Coordinated Bargaining Coalition. The other coalition was quite small. It was one of the larger unions and one of the smaller uh, it never really came up with a name, maybe because it only had two uh, unions, <laughs> but but we we came close. And so Railroad Workers United, which was formed in 2008, um, in this insane situation, uh, you know, we don't have a railroad workers union like we have the auto workers. We have the steel workers, rubber, textile and so forth. We don't have a railroad workers union because. We got organized way, way, way early compared to most industrial workers back in the 1860s, 70s and 80s and so forth. Well, it became readily apparent by the 1890s that this craft union system really wasn't working. And there were attempts uh, by Eugene V. Debs and others uh, to amalgamate the unions. Uh, and to actually supplant them with an industrial union called the American Railway Union in 1893. Whatever the case, without going into too much history, in 1926, uh, we ended up with this thing called the Railway Labor Act, which sort of ossified rail labor by craft. And so we are kind of stuck for better or for worse, and believe me, it's for the worse. Uh, with these old craft unions known as the Brotherhoods um, and not an industrial union formation. So in 2008, uh, in the face of the fratricide between the unions, particularly the unions of the operating crafts, the engineers union on one hand and the conductor's union on the other hand, uh, a bunch of us got together and formed this thing called Railroad Workers United uh, with a set of principles Uh, and the slogan solidarity unity democracy and we advocated an active rank and file we advocated uh, all workers who work for the railroad uh, acting in solidarity that the union should act in unison with one another and we advocated on behalf of one big bargaining coalition and so not to toot our own horn too much not to say that it was just because of us we did our (laughs) part Uh, but as of today there is this thing called the United Rail Unions, and it does include the 10 member unions of the CBC and the other two unions for a total of all 12 are now basically in the same boat together. Now, will that unity hold? Will it get us through this round of bargaining successfully? That all remains to be seen, Um, but it's a, it's a giant step forward in terms of the ability of rail labor to not stab itself in the back.
2: Yeah, which you know is the problem with, you know, the the craft the craft union, the the craft union movement, right? You know, it's also really easy for the employers or carriers in this case to kind of turn people against each other. So, I'm glad that you that you all have found, you know, a way to kind of take the one big union approach to bargaining here and I you know, I've read some things um, and I, I'm kind of curious because I read somewhere that you've that that you've been bargaining for several years now. is that is that true?
1: Yeah, the way it works under the Railway labor Act, it, it's incredibly convoluted very, very confusing uh, not only to the leadership and the general public, but of course rank and file railroad workers ourselves. Uh, are often just completely flummoxed by the process. We haven't had a strike since 1991 to compound uh, the problem because you know, if you went through the process you know every few years, we would be more versant with it. But the long and the short is this your contract under the rla never expires. So mm. basically in November of the year before contract expiration, the two sides exchange bargaining demands under the Railway Labor Act known as section six notices. So then the two parties commence to sit down and bargain. And this can usually take anywhere from a year or two to even three or four. And then if a voluntary agreement is not reachable, either side can appeal to the NMB uh, for mediation. Mm The NMB can say, nope, keep bargaining, or they can say, yep, you can go to mediation. In this case, the NMB said, yep, you can go to mediation. After a spell of mediation, the union said, nope, it ain't happening. They're refusing to budge on these issues. Uh, we want to move to the next step. The NMB at that point under the RLA can proffer arbitration. The union said, we don't want arbitration. We want to go to a presidential emergency board. So the NMB did rule back earlier this summer, it was actually in the spring, uh, that now the question would go uh, to a PEB. And so that means uh, upon announcement, the president has 30 days to appoint a tripartite commission to study the issue. (laughs) and render a non-binding recommendation it's so convoluted and so confusing
2: i mean i mean just the acronym soup we just swam in right there was was enough was enough to drown a person so um okay so real
0: streamlined system is what i'm getting oh yeah
2: okay so you so it sounds like it sounds like um that there's been there have been some negotiations happening and you know, I, I think you're better equipped to tell me your business than I am yours, but it, it sounds like one of the big things that you've talked about so far is the fact that there aren't enough of you. Like they, they've been cutting, they've been cutting staff. They they have like these random, these like badly scheduled routes. They call it scheduled, but it's, it's not. Um, and it sounds like even like it's not just workers that are mad, but even so like the shippers are mad at the railway union's um, so how the hell are the railway? I mean, not not the unions. The, the the shippers are mad at the railways, the carriers. So how the hell are the carriers getting away with all this? If you got if you got the people who pay them and the people who do the who do the job, how are they getting away with it?
1: Well, in a, in, in short, the word is capitalism, uh-huh. um, <laughs> and also monopoly capitalism. So the railroad industry, you know, it's not one railroad, um, but it's basically four. Uh, Kansas City Southern would be the fifth, Canadian National, which has oh a whole series of trackage in the Midwest. Uh, Canadian based company and then Canadian Pacific with more limited traffic, but soon to gobble up Kansas City Southern. Uh, so in all fairness, there's seven class one railroads, four big ones and three smaller players in the United States. And largely they are free with deregulation to set rates, um, to abandon trackage with some oversight by the government uh, that puts stipulations on when trackage can be abandoned. Um, In recent times due to precision scheduled railroading, the big class one carriers have shut down what's called hump yards where you, uh, by gravity, uh, drop cars over a, a small hill into the respective uh, sorting tracks, a uh, very efficient way to classify trains, uh, but expensive. They're expensive to maintain, they're expensive to staff. And so the wisdom these days is get rid of them if you, if you at all possibly can. And the tragedy there is once they're gone, especially there's there was one in Atlanta, uh, CSX ripped it out and the CEO at the time actually said, we want to destroy it because we don't want it ever to be a chance of it coming back. Well, one of the reasons was because the property was in downtown Atlanta and probably rendered the railroad tens of millions of dollars when they sold it for condo development, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying we don't need condos, but we certainly need railroad classification sorting facilities. I wanna see a rail industry that's robust, that's moving traffic out of the skies, off the inland waterways, and most importantly, off the nation's highways. Railroads are incredibly safe. They're incredibly fuel efficient. They can be electrified. The electricity can be drawn from uh, renewable sources. Uh, And so there's so many reasons to expand railroad operation. It's tragic whenever a railroad track uh, right away is abandoned or let alone one of these huge uh, classification yards is not only abandoned but destroyed and built over because it's not coming back and it's going to cost tens of millions of dollars to rebuild them when we need them so they're largely monopolistic formations they're fortune 500 corporations um they are out of the public eye because you know we used to have two million working for the railroad. Everybody had a brother, cousin, sister, father, father father-in-law worked for the railroad. That's not the case anymore. Uh, Also small town America, the depot was where the action was. That's where packages came in, uh, uh, daily milk runs, uh, 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 mail. uh, And that's where you would catch a train to go to the big city. That's pretty much all gone. And outside of people riding commuter trains in large places like LA, Chicago, Boston, New York, Most people don't really interface with the railroad and most people have no real clue how the hell it operates or what it does or anything else. So it's totally out of public view, add to this that the infrastructure is privately held. Uh, And by the way, that is one of the few countries in the world where the actual infrastructure of the railroad is owned privately. And I would also add it's an aberration, even in this country where the rest of our transportation network, whether it's inland waterways highways or airlines, uh, the infrastructure is all publicly owned. So the railroad is an anomaly in that sense. And because it's privately owned, uh, it's not really subject to a whole lot of debate in Congress or anywhere else as to what we want to do with it because it ain't none of our business in the free enterprise system, is it? Uh, I think we had the opportunity to I think we had the opportunity to
2: nationalize it back in the early 20s and we passed on that for one reason or another.
1: Yeah, and of course the reason that you know, quote unquote, we passed on it was because the power of capital was so strong. Uh, the labor movement was just about to be virtually destroyed in the 20s. Mm. Uh, but there was this thing called the Plum Plan, uh, named after this attorney named uh, named Plum, uh, and, and the rail unions at the time voted overwhelmingly to keep the railroads nationalized. President Wilson had nationalized the railroads. Uh, under this War Powers Act in 1917, uh, because the rail industry was incapable of delivering the goods. It was incapable of properly pursuing the war effort. And God knows, you know, when a capitalist war effort is is impinged upon, (laughs) drastic action is called for. And so they nationalized the railroads for a few years. Well, the railroad workers were quite happy with this arrangement. And I actually have the vote totals, not handy, but it was like 382,000 something to 4,000 voted to keep the railroads uh, publicly held. Uh, And at the AFL convention later that year, over the objections of Gompers, the president, uh, the union delegates voted to nationalize the mines, uh, uh, the railroads uh, and the steel industry, I believe. And all the rail union leadership mm-hmm. at the time was in favor of nationalization. So it's it's fascinating when you when you actually see how advanced and how progressive the union leadership was at that time. Don't, I mean, don't worry, saying we they weren't very backward in their own way at the, in those days. But uh, you won't see a union leader today clamoring for nationalization. I'm I'm sure we
2: found ways to purge them 30 years later. So <laughs> <laughs> to bring it to the present,
0: um, they voted for the strike. It's been put off uh by the president um to do this arbitration you know um are and you said the the unions haven't been on the railroad unions haven't been on a strike since the early 90s um what are are, are the unions prepared for a strike like is there a strike fund are they like ready to do it no, and, 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 and,
2: and and when you ask about the unions right because i think the big question here is like that's not third party of the union, are the workers ready to do it, right? Like are workers ready to get out there and strike?
1: Yeah, and those two things obviously have overlap and they are also independent of one another as well. Uh, I would postulate that the average railroad worker working for a class one freight carrier today, whether in the shop crafts, the operating crafts, maintenance of way, et cetera, are ready, willing and able and raring to strike uh there has been deep uh, anger and resentment and bitterness towards the industry for decades since i hired in in the mid-1990s so over 25 years i have witnessed this anger building and building uh, as in many industries uh uh, job consolidations um doing more with less uh harsher and harsher discipline attendance policies that do not give you time off work, uh, additional co-pays and deductibles in health care, um, wage increases that barely keep pace with inflation if then we could go down the litany and the list of, of reasons for the hostility of rank and file railroad workers toward the railroad. so i think mentally psychologically uh, emotionally they're ready. Uh, do they have the tools they experience, the strategy, the tactics, um, the schooling, the education. Uh, No, there has been almost no preparation over the last 30 years since the last strike uh, by the union leadership. Um, Railroad Workers United as of today is issuing a strike t-shirt for anybody who wishes to purchase one at cost. The rail unions have not issued a t-shirt about bargaining, about striking, about anything. There's no stickers, there's no bumper stickers, there's no flyers, there's no posters. There's absolutely no picket signs um, that I am aware of or any of my coworkers uh, are aware of. And so in that sense, we are lacking the paraphernalia, we are lacking the practice, and we're lacking the brain trust since most of us in the industry weren't here 30 years ago to even remember that strike. Hmm. Um, so we got a lot of work to do between now and September. I believe it's the 18th.
2: this is this is kind of a fascinating piece of like 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 labor stuff, right? Like I'm I'm looking out over um, like looking back at the Kellogg strike, right uh, that just happened. And one of the things that we learned talking to a few workers over there, was something very similar. It's like we haven't struck in more than 50 years. Like no one remembers how this even works, except for we stop working, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and and like rebuilding that knowledge is is really hard. And it's you know, it's really it's really detrimental. Like who's gonna walk the line? Um, do we have a strike fund? What like how are we feeding people? Who's coming out? What's the solidarity effort? Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we learned about the Kellogg strike is that some people just went and took separate jobs, like temporarily, like they, they just took different jobs, and, and and they kept working. And I get it, we got to put food on the table. But, but also, if you don't have people on the line, you know, what kind of strike do you have? Uh, and And so like, keeping up that solidarity and that community spirit, like these are things that we I feel like a lot of us have forgotten how to do. And and you know, Kellogg is a relatively small thing compared to. I mean, I mean, their strike was a huge deal. I don't I don't I don't mean to like say that their strike is was not important, but but y'all, you folks at the railways, like you are the arteries of the nation, right? Like you like you just said, you you transport tons of freight. Um, and and if you shut down, we are going to feel it. Like that is something that the nation will feel. So how do you sustain it? How like what like what's the what's the messaging? And, and I know you just said like like the, the, the unions don't seem to be ready for it quite yet, but how do we get them there?
1: Well, it's an excellent question. And contributing to the problem, um, and in some defense of the craft union leadership, and I don't often defend them <laughs> and their, their lack of activity but in their defense uh and in the rank and files defense too because you know we've been inculcated with this with this sort of half truth that we can't strike the railway labor act sort of has precluded our right to strike and i always correct my co-workers and tell them no we do have the right to strike uh, the law maintains the right to order us back to work under all this convoluted uh, bs of the railway labor act um but because the general wisdom is that look if we strike they're going to order us back to work within 24 hours and i think in 91 it lasted 14 hours and so it's hard to prepare for a parade that is going to be rained on as mm-hmm. soon as it's you know the line of March starts heading down Main Street, we know there's going to be a huge cloudburst, 100% chance of a huge thunderstorm. Uh, It's hard to motivate uh, Mm -hmm. people. And and that would apply to both leadership and rank and file. Nevertheless, I think one of the things that the union leadership dismisses or simply doesn't understand uh, or appreciate is that It's not just about the strike itself. It's about the threat of the strike. It's all theater. It's about impressing upon your adversary that you have the potential to hurt them greatly and that you are ready, willing, and able to do it. And through rallies and t-shirts and demonstrations and practice picketing and, and all sorts of creative actions, We can scare the bejesus out of the rail carriers, and in the process, build solidarity, uh, psych our members up, get them to Mm -hmm. believe that we are, you know, fighting in a righteous cause. And if it does come to a strike, by God, we are not going to blow this opportunity. And so we need these theatrics. We need all of this uh, pre-strike activity to be going on right now. Um, there are a few rallies that have taken place, there are a few more rallies that are scheduled, uh, but we need them in places like Chicago, Kansas City, St. Louis, uh, the Jersey Shore, I mean, large terminals where there's masses of railroad workers is where we should be carrying. And, you know, my thoughts are, hell, let's do them on Labor Day. Or, or soon thereafter, but let's have a coordinated day of railroad worker action nationwide to draw attention of the public, the media, the shippers and the carriers themselves. Like we mean business, we are organized, serious, principled and dedicated, and we're gonna kick your ass. Um, whether or not we get ordered back to work in five or 10 or 15 or 20 hours, we'll never know. Uh, and as I think Utah Phillips used to say something to the effect of, you only have rights if you use them. If we never go on strike or never even threaten to strike seriously, then yeah, we don't have the right to strike. Right. So we better damn well get ready to use
0: it. I didn't know that you, that you get called back. Could you just like go, no, we're not going to do it? Or like, what would what the punishment be? You know what I mean?
2: I mean, so so I can say that in like um a lot of like states uh and public sector unions are very familiar with this kind of nonsense, right? Where like in Michigan, for example, public sector unions are it is illegal for them to strike. And and the the question is often, well, what are you gonna do? You know, if if teachers in Michigan collectively walk out and demand reasonable pay increases, better better policies, better funding, like what are they going to do? And the the answer that we've seen threatened, although I don't know that we've seen it happen directly, but the answer we we've, we've seen threatened is well, we'll bankrupt your unions. We will bankrupt your unions. We will drag you through court, we will file injunctions, we will sue you into the ground for every dollar that we lost and and that that's a threat that certainly like the labor bureaucracy feels but also bargaining is expensive lawyers are expensive i mean it feels it feels it feels stressful i don't know what do you think ron uh
1: very complex subject uh because you're also dealing with once again the dichotomy between the rank and file on the one hand and the union officialdom on the other yeah uh the union official officialdom has some sway over the rank and file, but not completely. And in some cases, historically, they can lose control altogether over the rank and file. And so just a few uh, uh, strikes come to mind. I was a member of the Wisconsin State Employees Union before I hired out with the railroad and I became the president of a large local. And um, way before I hired in back in the 70s, uh, the WSEU went on strike, it was illegal. Uh, The union emerged from that strike, I believe, more powerful and ended up actually uh, becoming more of a union as opposed to a association. But I I just don't know all the details of what went down. But yeah, they struck illegally. In Baltimore growing up, uh, like most cities, it was illegal for municipal workers to strike. I remember there was a garbage strike. It was a teacher strike in the early 70s. And I'm not sure, but I believe those strikes were illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, most strikes prior to the advent of the National Labor Relations Act, in effect were illegal. Uh, And so the history of the labor movement and how it actually came into being, uh, and I would add the civil rights movement and many, many, many other movements um, was predicated upon simply taking action and violating unjust laws uh, you know, the civil rights movement, obviously, the sit-ins in North Carolina, the Woolworths, and all that come to mind um, as ways that we expanded our, our rights and our freedoms. So back to the railroad, um, if and when, I mean, this is high profile stuff, too. We're not just talking about a city here. We're talking about the national That's government right. and we're talking about federal law and we're talking about the nation, this will be on uh, headline news on every news channel if we do go on strike. Uh, And of course, if there was a defiance of a back-to-work order, that would definitely be headline news as well. So, you you know, workers and their unions are not gonna take this lightly. Uh, The union leadership, I can guarantee you, uh, will not advocate violation of a back-to-work order. What the rank and file will do is anyone's guess. Theoretically, they don't wanna lose their jobs. Uh, they do not wanna face civil penalties, nor do any kind of time in jail. And so the chances are that the rank and file will uh, go back to work. Um, this said, for the first time in my lifetime on the railroad, what we're seeing is workers, like I say, with five, 10, 20 years seniority voluntarily quitting and saying i can't take it anymore i've had enough so those folks who are ready to walk anyway theoretically have nothing to lose and so this time around it's hard to say if workers would actually say to hell with it i don't want to go back uh and i'm just about to quit anyway so i'm not going back I, I don't think that will happen, but I can't predict the future because I'm only one person, and I don't know the anger and frustration that other freight railroad workers are feeling right now, uh, although I know it's very deep.
0: How can regular people uh, that are going to be
1: affected by you know a railroad strike uh,
0: get ready and help out with the railroad strike?
1: Well, I actually uh, you know we just, we just advertised these t-shirts for sale, and we've had twenty five orders this morning. Uh, Hopefully, we will get hundreds of hundreds of people, both railroad workers and family members and other solidarity members, union supporters in the community wearing these shirts as well. Uh, That's just one way. I had a healthcare worker, I think a nurse, in the comments in the store, she said, uh, how else can we help you uh, in the healthcare industry? And I said, oh, well, just you know, keep up with what's going on. Of course, if there's any rallies in, in the community, uh, please, uh, please attend <laughs> and wear your mm-hmm. T-shirt. Um, and obviously if there's a strike, um, there'll be picket lines in communities. Any town of any size in this country has a railroad terminal and a depot, mm-hmm. a yard. Uh, there should be a picket line. Uh, go down and walk that picket line uh, and stand shoulder to shoulder with the railroad workers who are out there. I mean, these are just a few ways uh, that people can sort of promote the cause. The ILWU, West Coast Longshoremen um, uh, Docks Division, just adopted a resolution in support of railroad workers. Um, So, you know, having your local union, your international adopt resolutions of support just to put it out there that they are aware and acknowledging of what's going on and to make a solid uh, public statement that they support the railroad workers in their efforts to achieve a good contract. Just basically all of the the basic tools of solidarity that that unions Mm. have at their disposal.
0: Across the pond right now, there's a rail strike over in the UK. Mm. I don't know if you've seen um, their head of their union, Mike Lynch, do any interviews? I want to I want to know your general thoughts about Mike Lynch and that whole strike going on, because I feel like he's a cool dude.
1: (laughs) Now, RMT is more of an industrial union, of course, rail marine transport workers union. Um, And of course, they they came out of the old uh, uh, trainmen's union. Um, and but I encompass uh, workers on the on the waterfront and, and on the on the water as well. I don't know much about that union or that section of that union. Uh, but it has a more militant tradition. Uh, it generally um, has high profile actions. It involves the rank and file. It uh, is more willing to engage in strikes and not just open-ended strikes, but creative, uh, targeted strikes, rolling strikes, uh, uh, striking for a day here and a day there, uh, and so forth, keeping the uh, rail carriers off balance, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, they have had a series of general secretaries. I believe is their principal officer. They've had a series of these guys who are, you know, very, very militant, very outspoken, very combative, uh, and very class conscious a uh, very, very different uh, culture than what we have in the rail unions in the United States. I, I, I wish them all the best. Uh, they apparently have uh, great support amongst the labor movement in the UK, great support amongst the general public. Um, I only wish and hope that we enjoy such support uh, of the people and of the you know, the unions in this country if and when we were to go on strike
0: yeah, i i saw him come up on my feed and i was like oh this guy's cool Where, where's where's this guy here you know <laughs>
2: um
0: yeah i think that about wraps it up um derek you have any other questions
2: no i just want to say that uh i'm i'm 100 with you i think that in terms of fighting unjust laws um you know, there are a lot of labor laws that have been erected in this country that restrain our rights, right, as workers to demand better. The rail companies that you're working with, like many of the companies around the country, are making record profits while workers continue to struggle paycheck to paycheck, or just or just continue to see their wages stagnate in general, or their benefits get cut while CEOs get golden parachutes and. And I, I don't care you, you, how, how many presidential emergency boards you need to you need to put together to talk about this problem, but the problem is pretty clear to me. You got a bunch of greedy capitalists who are up there, basically taking from workers. And, and then using the laws, like the fact that they can enjoin you from striking using the courts to basically say, what are you going to do about it? And at some point, the answer has to be, well, we'll show you what we'll do about it. We, 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 we will literally tear your railroad to the ground. Um, watch us. Watch us do it. And that's, um, you know, I think you're right. You're not going to see any union bureaucrat do that. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, one, because that will get the union suiting to the ground, and that will bankrupt Mm. the union in the long run. Uh, But B, that has to be a movement by workers, right? Like workers and leaders amongst workers need to stand up and basically say, this is what we're doing. Um, We are walking out and we are standing together. And I think that for our part here in Washington County, um, you know, we we will do everything we can to certainly pass motions of support and i know that we're not a major transportation hub um, in terms of like where a lot of the action would be happening but uh, we definitely want to stay in touch and if anything does happen i'd love to hear about it so that we can show up when it goes down
1: so yeah the rail industry you know as you referenced earlier uh, derek i mean it is the backbone of industrial society and not only of course do railroads Uh, bring in raw materials and take out final product from a place like Kellogg's, uh, that is duplicated a hundred, a thousand times over in basic industry all across the country. So it is something that connects all of industry. It is something that industry is predicated upon. Uh, And because we operate in all the lower 48 states, uh, this is of interest and is newsworthy uh to all working people all unions all across the country if we were to go on strike or even through the threat of strike uh succeed in our demands and win this will be a great inspiration to workers at amazon and starbucks and kellogg's and john deere and the thousands and thousands of other workplaces around the country uh who are either Organized and up against the wall by demands for givebacks from their employer, uh, or the 90% of the workforce who is unorganized but looking hopefully to uh, one day join a union. So it's critical that the railroad workers win this struggle, uh, and it's therefore critical that that working people and our unions all around the country take note and do whatever they can uh, to assist the railroad workers in the next few months.
0: Thank you so much for being on, Ron, and I wish you luck.
1: Yeah same thanks thanks you guys are great and uh this has been very very easy (laughs) (laughs) and that's the show folks it was recorded
0: and edited by me fellow worker jason the intro and outro song are also by me fellow worker jason if you'd like to join the IWW and be part of the One Big Union, go to iww.org join. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, you can always email us at ipslanny at iww.org. And until next time, an injury to one is an injury to all.